And I'm McKenna. And together we're the Daily Profcast. We're two long-distance besties who share a love of Harry Potter. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Daily Profcast. We are doing a lot. Today's a marathon. Yeah, we're doing four chapters today. We're going to go chapter 31 through 34. And this is going to be our penultimate episode on Goblet of Fur, as far as the book goes. And then we'll have our film episode. We are almost at the end. Today we're covering the third task and everything that happens in the graveyard. It is scary. I was just reading it and I was like, this is so much more freaky in the book. than I mean, they did such a great job in the film with the whole graveyard scene. It's very, you know... It has the aesthetics of being very scary, but just the Voldemort's whole monologue and how creepy he is. It's really freaky in the book. I have a really like such a new appreciation for what a great villain Voldemort is. Not that he's like great and I like him, but great isn't like he's very easy to hate. He's effective as a villain for sure. Absolutely. And it brought up his like monologue brings up a lot of questions for me so we'll get to that but for now we are at chapter 31 the third task so the first thing I wrote down about this chapter the first thing that really got me is Harry sort of reflecting on how he has not told anybody about Neville yeah so remember we're coming out of Harry seeing the pensieve for the first time in Dumbledore's office and doing that with him And then he comes back and has this little debrief with Ron and Hermione, but he obeys Dumbledore's wishes when he asks, like, don't tell your friends about Neville's parents. That's Neville's story to tell. Right. And he starts to sort of recognize that he's not the only person who's been affected by Voldemort and that there's a lot of people, Neville included, obviously, who have lost parents, who have lost family, whose lives have in some way been disrupted by what Voldemort has done. And I think that's it's important because teenagers specifically can be so Mm self-centered and we see it a lot. And I think with Harry where he's, I have to go at this alone. This is my journey, my thing to take on. And we see Ron, especially in the last book and movie sort of push back against him and say, this is so much bigger than you. And I think it's important to see him have these reminders and start to be cognizant of the fact that he's, you know, not the only orphan And as we're going to find out in the next book, he's only the chosen one because Voldemort basically made that mistake or made that choice. And it's very fluid, you know, it's not so divine. And Right, absolutely. And yeah, it even says he thought Neville deserved, you know, after hearing sort of getting in bed that night and thinking about everything he saw, he literally thinks to himself, he thought Neville deserved sympathy more than he did. Right. Because his parents are like, like we've talked about many times and you've said this many times where you're like, it's almost worse because his parents are there physically, but they're not there mentally. Right. They're so attainable, but they're not. Yeah. That's, and that's very hard. And then Harry starts to, this is sort of, you know, the times we've seen Harry get angry this year are when he's had that spat with Ron. Like he just got frustrated that his friend wasn't like on his side with him, but this is this anger he starts to get really angry thinking about how Voldemort has torn so many families apart not just his like you said like he's realizing a lot of people have been affected by this first wizarding war and this is this to me is almost the start of the like angst and anger that we're gonna see in Harry next year like really prominently it starts here and then Voldemort uses it in a really twisted way to attack him next year so 
Yeah. And he goes to sleep that night with all of this on his mind. The next day, you know, Hermione and Ron are, are being really good friends in the way that they're helping Harry prep for the third task, which is sort of ambiguous. He knows he's going into a maze and he knows there's going to be obstacles, but he doesn't know how he's supposed to prepare. He's like, well, Moody had mentioned like, you've, you know, you've gotten past stuff like this before when you went to the Sorcerer's Stone, blah, blah, So he's like, I'm assuming I'm going to have to defend myself in some way. Like, that's probably the point of the task. So they're practicing the impediment jinx. I'm sorry, the impediment curse, the reducto, the reductor curse, the four point spell, which is something we don't see in the movie where you can say point me and your wand points due north. And then he's having trouble with the shield charm. I think that's very funny because it's really silly to think about like these kids have been in a defense against the dark out dark arts class for four years and nobody's professor moody's like i'm gonna teach you how to resist an unforgivable curse but screw the shield charm right it makes absolutely no sense the education at hogwarts we said it before it's so inconsistent and unrealistic maybe that was something they were supposed to learn second year and then lockhart just like dropped the ball anyway I love that, you know, in kind of all of the excitement of Ron and Hermione helping Harry, but also studying for their finals. I love there's a line where Ron mentions that all of this training will become useful when they're all three of them are oars. And I just thought it was so cute that he just is imagining that. And also, I just, while I think Hermione obviously is she has the talent and the ability. I feel like she doesn't have the stomach to be an horror. I just like don't see her enjoying that line of work. Yeah, the way that Hermione desires to, I mean, we even see it at the age of 14, the way Hermione desires to make change in the world is through like structural, yeah, stru- yes, absolutely. <laughs> so it makes complete sense that she goes on to be the minister of magic, but, and Ron does become an horror for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. and then decides to retire but but yeah it's i also wrote that down i think it's really cute that they have a moment to just like dream about their futures and be optimistic about it before poop hits the fan right i love Um, that and then we go into harry's basically just chilling out during class it just like seems like such a waste of a year because he doesn't have to take his finals right he's called out to connect with the other champions and their families to basically wish them well before the third task. Right. Really quick before this, another Rita Skeeter article comes out about Harry's fit in divination. And Hermione's like, are you joking? Like, there's no way. And Harry's like, well, I had the window open. She's like, you were on, you were in the tower. Like she couldn't have heard you from outside, even if she was outside on the ground, like there's no way. And then she has this, there's this moment it describes, she like stops and she, we see her realizing, and then she puts her fingers in her hair and she's like feeling her hair. And you realize she's recalling when she had that water beetle in her hair after the second task. And she realizes the light bulb goes off and she realizes what the, what's going on here with Rita Skeeter. So she runs off to go test that theory the and then yes and then, yeah and then harry gets called in and all the champions families are there but of course harry's only family is the dursleys and they wouldn't come so right so he's trying to get out of it and cedric's like you gotta come in here what are you doing like get, get in and so sweet so nice like the weasley family all of them who are not active students at hogwarts except for charlie 
are there to greet him. I think him. it's just Molly and Bill, right? Oh yeah, I guess Mr. Weasley wasn't there. Yeah, I don't. I think he's working. But yeah, Molly and Bill are there. So Which is cute. interesting because that's when Fleur first sees Bill. Right. And I, I loved the inclusion of that. Because I think in the movies, if you're just a movie fan, I think you can miss, like, how did these people meet? Yes. Because Bill's just not included until the very end. And, you know, and Fleur is, like, just a young student. She's sort of a blip until the very end as well. Mm-hmm. So I like that we just get this little moment of her noticing him. Yes. And how cool he is. He's the cool... Bill? Ron's cool big brother. Oh my god, I love Bill. Random side note. Molly is telling Harry about Apollyon Pringle, the caretaker before Hagrid. She says, she mentions there's a caretaker. Oh, I guess he would be the caretaker before Filch was Apollyon Pringle. And then the groundskeeper before Hagrid was this person named Og. O-G. Og. And Mr. Diggory's kind of salty towards him. Yeah, he's he's too proud of a parent in an almost like aggressive sort of way. He's like the dance moms of the Triwizard. Yes, he's a stage dad. Yeah, that's he's totally a Quidditch, dad, Quidditch dad. Yep. Like just too proud. You know, like there's proud of your child and then there's like Amos Diggory level too proud. So the third task set to begin, the... Do you kind of want to just explain the essential, like the idea the order of, of the task? Yeah. Yes. So in the film, we see this like vast maze stretching out over what looks to be the lake in the film. They like covered the lake in this maze. That's not the case in the book. It's as we've mentioned, it's in the Quidditch pitch and these like shrubs have become 20 feet high. So it really is a maze. You can't see over it. And it sounds like everyone's spectating from the stands, but the champ, there's no indication that the champions can really hear the spectators. I don't know if that's by magic. There's some sort of like charm that makes it kind of silent or if they're actually kind of far away from them. I don't know. I'm not um, sure that they are. Like, I don't know that they have great visibility into spectating. Well, I mean, the only reference we really have is how the Quidditch pitch looks in the film. And everyone kind of sits up in those towers. So I'm assuming that, like, you could look down and s- see, like, a portion of the maze. And, like, if the families are, like, coming to watch, like, they're, every task has sort of had like a spectator element to it. I don't really, not so much the second one, I guess. I actually but... wrote down in my notes that as I'm starting to like get through these tasks, I'm realizing more and more why the Triwizard Tournament was such a great place for Imposter Moody to do his thing. And that's because there was little spectating. Oh. And to me point. in my head, when I think of people up in the towers and then you have the 20 foot shrubbery sure i would imagine those kind of cast a shadow onto right. the below and that it's probably pretty narrow in terms of pathways yeah. so i don't know that they would be able to see a lot this visual is a little bit tricky for me as far as this taking place in the quidditch pitch but of course with magic you can do magical extension charms you can do you know silencing charms like there's a lot you can do to sort of make the you know set it there but still make the champions feel sort of isolated and i i wrote a note this is a side note i wrote a note i was like where's moody like we have not seen moody today you would think moody we in the film you see him he's like harry's little like coach in the corner of the ring but we haven't seen moody at all today i imagine Um, moody's in the maze well he is 
making sure things are that's exactly going where awry. he is, he yeah. is in the, he is in the, precisely so again it's why it's like it, it's beneficial that people wouldn't be able to spectate yes yeah so so it's I not don't like really the know. hunger games i don't think where you're getting like a play-by-play no that's yeah. like a screen i don't i yeah i don't know because you know and in the there's... movie they just pop out you know and they're, they're just, just like all been looking, waiting in the there's stands. some stands but it's just like at the edge so they're not able to like look in like it almost looks like they've just so... been having like a party waiting for whatever champion to arrive right back. and you've got that band so i yeah i don't really the i don't really feel like oh yeah <laughs> yeah very poorly timed but i don't yeah i don't really have a good visual in my head as to how the families are watching or anyone in the school or the judge like judges have to watch to be able to make a determination you would think right so well I don't the really winner know. just comes back first that's how well, you win so i don't I, know that I suppose there's... plus the um, judges really couldn't see inside the water when they were you know it was whoever rose to the surface right and then the, yeah person. yeah the mermaids just came and gave like a little debrief the um, rules are just very unclear on this I, i'm not sure they're doing a good job i think the films actually do a good job of like letting us see how this probably would look even if there's a slight setting change but that i just i can't really visualize that anyway long story short so there's this maze in the maze is the triwizard cup and if you grab if you are the first person to the cup you win the tournament okay but in the maze there not only is it a maze so it's not just like a straight shot to this cup there are obstacles there are like things that have been put in place to you know prevent you from getting there quite so quickly and you'll um, have to use your magical skills to get past them that's why harry's been working so much on his stunning charms and like his defensive spells etc because he knows that there's going to be things in the maze to to deter him and we can only assume that they might even be customized a little bit to the champions because we've kind of seen that a little bit yeah how they sort of play to the champions both strengths and weaknesses right 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 so now the the catch is you know harry and cedric are tied for first then there's crumb in second then flores in third and they get to go in they sort of stagger when the champions are allowed to enter the maze so the benefit of being the first place in the in the tournament is you get to go in a little bit before second and third place so harry and cedric enter the maze first and at first Harry's like a little bit nerved by the lack of difficulty. He's just like walking through this maze and it's kind of, it's like a little bit, you know, quiet. And he's like, this is almost too easy. And even when he does hit an obstacle, it's not that he doesn't, it's not like, it doesn't seem as daunting or dangerous as anything that we face in the first or second test. So the first thing he comes across is what appears to be a Dementor. And so he casts a Patronus and it doesn't really do anything. And he's like, oh, it's a bogger. Ridiculous. And then, you know, the Dementor, the bogger goes away. And then, Which, I mean, again, for Imposter Moody, it benefits him that the things that Harry encounters specifically are not difficult. Or, or are playing to his strengths. Right. Because he needs Harry to the, make it through. Right. And the, absolutely. And this is, you know, he really trained hard on how to deal with both boggarts and Dementors. In the previous year and i wrote down harry owes lupin some chocolate for teaching him how to deal with pockets yes he does although i don't think lupin would be thrilled that this is you know this was so easy that harry got through i think he'd be thrilled because he handled the boggart not thrilled that it allowed him to get closer to the cup and i think at this point he hears fleur in the distance scream, scream. Mm-hmm. here's a woman scream and he's like well the only girl in here is Fleur so it's gotta be Fleur and Harry's first instinct is always to help 
like when he sees Fleur's sister down there in the lake, his like, or when, you know, he gets there first, so he sees all of them and he's like, his, his first instinct is to get everybody in help. But there is a really good attitude, well, not good, but a very interesting attitude shift with Harry where he's like, well, is it such a bad thing that she's out of the competition? Because I've made it this far. Why can't I win? Why shouldn't I win? Yeah, this sort this of competitiveness his creeps in. ambition. Yeah, absolutely. He suddenly gets really competitive. And, you know, I think in his mind, like, he's not thinking somebody has come in here and seriously harmed Fleur Delacour. He's like, oh, she just encountered one of the obstacles and, like, didn't get past. And, right. you know, like, there's no way that anything in here could, like, seriously injure her because it's a school competition. The way, they've already faced a dragon, so. The way this plays out, too, in the movie, slightly different, is that the champions are instructed to send up red sparks with their they are wand. they are also instructed in the book but he doesn't see red the, the thing that sort of catches Confuses him off guard is, right he doesn't see the red sparks he's like okay is she okay but he in doesn't the movie, go he sees the red sparks we don't well okay that's a lot he's about to go and check and he encounters this like gold mist yes and he's like is this safe to walk into and he takes one step into it and it like flips the world upside down and it totally discombobulates him. And so I think he turns around and goes the other way. Right. He's like, I, you know what, I'm just gonna, we're just gonna go a different way and hope Fleur's okay. I don't think he's thinking like people are in serious danger. It's just, you know, tests to get to the cup and I have to get to the cup. Right. You know, but his first instinct, you know, Harry's first instinct is always to help. Yeah, because that's just who he is. I think it's the core of his character. But right. I, I do see this, like, it's just interesting that his sort of second instinct is like, well, maybe it's not a bad thing she's not in this competition. Right. Like, I've come so far. Why shouldn't I win? Why couldn't I win? So um, then we, we see this again very shortly after because he comes upon both Crumb and Cedric in this little kerfuffle and crumbs like attacking cedric he uses the cruciatus curse on cedric and harry sort of hears this going on and again his first instinct is to help so he runs up to see what's happening and he sees crumb use this curse on cedric and incapacitates crumb and that's a little that's really shocking as a reader for at first because you're like whoa like that is an unforgive unforgivable curse it's not like this is a this is supposed to be a friendly school competition and everything we've seen of Crumb up until this point has been very professional and amicable. He hasn't like tried to sabotage anybody or really hurt anybody. Although he did just get attacked in the Forbidden Forest so maybe he's a little more on edge like what's going on? But then, you know, when you think a little harder about it you're like Oh, well, maybe this is like a Durmstrang Hogwarts discrepancy because, you know, at Durmstrang, they're a little bit more cool about the dark arts. So maybe this is just like a little bit more like in, you know, when you're at Durmstrang, this curse is like a little bit more okay to use. Like what's, but it's very shocking for Harry and Cedric. Right. They're, they're like, we didn't know he was like that. And yeah. everything that we've been told about Cedric is he's almost like this big teddy bear with feelings yeah. and emotions and he just wants to be listened to and talked to and heard and we see it with Hermione just this like romantic you know this like relationship he's pursuing with Hermione and then total 180 in the right so as a reader we're really shocked by that and it seems you know it seems our first instinct is like something's weird something's fishy but then you could sort of explain it away Right. It's like he's been possessed a little, but it's... Uh, ding, ding, ding. 
Right. But you don't really quite know. And again, the, the movie makes it very obvious because when Victor turns around and you sort of see him face the camera in this moment, his eyes are like all white and glazed over. And he obviously looks like something has come over him, which we'll get to. But the movie makes it obviously just so much more obvious. But when you're reading this, it's part of the big mystery. Yeah. Yeah. So couple weird things fleur screams and no red sparks and then crumb uses his curse and then so so harry i think stuns crumb and he he stupefies him and crumb just passes out and so cedric and harry are sort of like looking at each other and then they just go their separate ways they're like okay thank you and bye because it's a little bit tense and they don't really want to have to you know do anything to the other person so so they just walk away the next thing that Harry comes across is, the, and this is, the, you know, this is another thing that we do not see in the film at all. He encounters the Sphinx. I wish this had been left in the movie. Me? So cool. So Sphinx, you know, there's, we know about Sphinx in mythology, but particularly in Harry Potter lore, Sphinx is, you know, the it's a magical creature with the body of a lion, the face of a woman, and it's blocking his way. And it basically says to him, you know, I'm going to give you a riddle. If you answer correctly, I'll let you pass. If you answer incorrectly, I will attack you. If you just walk away, I won't follow you. And you can just walk away and go around the wrong way. If there's a moment where Harry's like, so can you just move, please? Or can you just get out of the way? Can Can you you just uh, get out of the way? So I want to read this riddle that the Sphinx gives. So the Sphinx says, it's like a four part. it's, it's, It's like a three or four part riddle. It says, First, think of the person who lives in disguise, who deals in secrets and tells naught but lies. Next, tell me what's always the last thing to mend, the middle of middle and the end of the end. And finally, give me the sound often heard during the search for a hard to find word. Now string them together and answer me this. Which creature would you be unwilling to kiss? So it's three parts and then you have to put the three parts together to get a word of a creature that you'd be unwilling to kiss. So Harry's like kind of dancing around this. He figures out the final part first. During the search for a hard to find word, er, you know, in America we say, in the UK they say erm er. or er, but which sounds like to us. So the end of the word is er. And then, you know, a person who'd be an imposter who deals in disguise, a spy, and then the middle of middle and the end of the end is the letter D. So he comes up with spider. And that is the correct answer to the riddle. Creature that you'd be unwilling to kiss. And the Sphinx moves aside. So cool. cool. It's such a cool sequence to see Daniel Radcliffe have to deal with in the film. I guess they were tapped out on their CGI budget. <laughs> Maybe. Now the problem is he comes across an actual spider. What I think is probably an acromantula giant spider it's attacking cedric and so he tries to save cedric again his first instinct is to help he could have walked away and like gone to the cup and just left cedric to his own devices but his first instinct is to help but in the process of trying to you know help cedric fend off the spider he gets like bitten and then dropped on his leg so he hurts his leg pretty badly and he has this moment where he gets angry again like Cedric, they fend off the spider and Harry's hurt and Cedric's standing there and he, he's like, you know, standing over Harry and Harry gets mad. He's like, well, you know, he beat me to Cho and now he's going to win the competition because I cannot outrun him now. So whatever. And he gets a little huffy about it. 
but they're both so noble that they decide they see the cup they decide there's no like weird wind that's closing the shrubs like we see in the movie they both decide that they're going to walk up and they're going to grab the cup together and win together it's because they're both noble and they're both good at their core even if sometimes they let you know competition in a little bit get and get the better of them a little bit at the end of the day but they're both noble i thought it was very interesting sort of the way he you know feels competitive once he realizes that fleur is out of the competition and then how he's sort of like willing to walk hand in hand with head with cedric and you know make it to the end with him and it just mm-hmm. kind of shows two very interesting sides of harry that i like yeah yeah absolutely this unfortunately this scene made me especially sad because me too i kept thinking i just wonder what their friendship would have blossomed into had they had the time that is a really sad thought i didn't think about that this unfortunately brings us into chapter 32 flesh blood and bone so as you would have seen in the film the triwizard cup has been enchanted to become a port key so they grab the cup and they are transported somewhere and the key sign for us at the end of the last chapter is when Harry grabs the cup, he says it feels like something is pulling him from behind the navel, which is exactly what he said when he took the port key to the Triwizard Tournament. So immediately you're like, what? A Triwizard Tournament. I'm sorry, the Quidditch World Cup. And they take this port key and they end up in a graveyard. They see a figure coming among the gravestones. Harry's scar starts to hurt more than it's ever hurt in his entire life. And we know that when Harry's scar hurts, it means that Voldemort is nearby or like the spirit of Voldemort is in the vicinity and we get the class. Do you want to, do you want to say it? We get the, we get the, in the film, we get the exact same line where we hear the thing that this person is carrying say, kill the spare. I know reducing Cedric, this like really noble kid who has everything going for him to just this word, the spare. And it just, it's really, what's so disturbing about it is just like the lack of regard for human life that's disturbing like we we watch a lot of movies and you know tv and read books where people die and are killed all the time we see people get killed on tv and in media all the time so i feel like we're kind of desensitized to it as a society a little bit maybe for most rational people not in real life like watching somebody die in a movie is not quite the same as like having one of your loved ones pass away. Like that's different. You don't get desensitized when that happens to you in real life, but it's, it's against human nature to, or well, maybe it's against the laws of nature to murder someone as we have already learned from this book that is physical, that is actually a part of Harry Potter lore that it's against the laws of nature to kill another person. And just it's the, the lack of regard for human life is disturbing. It should disturb us that suddenly Cedric is now dead. Harry doesn't even have time to process it yet. He just looks over and Cedric's on the ground. It's so, sorry, flipping my pages of notes. It's so shocking and it hits so quick. And I remember reading this for the first time and it was totally a change of mood, a change of pace. We don't see it coming. No, it's like, and then once you, have just the most brief second to process it before we go into all of this crazy stuff we're about to go into it's like wow anything can happen now and this is now like that's the tagline for the rest of the series anything can happen 
this yeah. is a free-for-all like like you said like the laws of nature are just being defied it, it's so evil and it's so disgusting and disturbing um, it's so like like no one's safe like when you like when you were reading a book and like you know you read books all the time where there are plot twists and people die or get killed but like when you're reading a book and you get to know a character and there's absolutely no lead up or indication that this character is going to die and this character is like Cedric's a child he is a kid he's 17 years old maybe 18 he's a child and he's gone he's murdered nobody is safe anymore it's not the bad guys and the old guys that are dying. It's the kids. That's and, disturbing. And Harry just felt so safe and being like, well, Fleur's going to be fine because we're, we're just children. Right. This is just a friendly child competition. And now just before his eyes, and it's obviously the loss of life, human life, always bad. But I think Harry is just so fond of Cedric, even when he wants to hate him because of his relationship with Cho. Cedric is just always a stand-up guy, just like looking out for Harry. Like he's just, he's the guy. That's why he's the Triwizard Champion for Hogwarts is he's like the, what I would consider like the all-American jock. He's like, you know, the all-British, you know, jock for Hogwarts. He's like the perfect guy. And then in an instant, out of no fault of his own, you know, he wasn't trying to get into this. He wasn't, you know, he did a good thing. He went with Harry. He decided to like walk hand in hand with Harry and not take him down, even if he probably had the opportunity. And after doing- Harry like, gave him the opportunity. Right? Harry was like, go, I'm hurt. You're not, go grab it. And he refused. And it's just, it's, you know, as somebody who's grown up with these books, and watch the film so many times you see robert pattinson hit the ground so many times and it's like yeah you know cedric's gonna die it's whatever and then i just i go back to this book and i'm like this is really messed up this is awful he's a kid and he's like you know sometimes you get a lead up you like know a character's gonna die like i just watch spoiler alert if you have not seen the movie in the heights yet scroll forward like 30 seconds i'll give you a second go scroll when you're watching in the heights abuelita gets this like dance number like this little dream sequence before she passes away very you know calmly in her sleep like you know she's gonna die you're watching her on this bed like watch all the kids she loves and she's sitting there and she's smiling and then she sings her little song and then she just peacefully exits her body and it's fine like you know there's a lead up there's absolutely no lead up okay spoiler over spoiler over so harry the other reason Harry doesn't have time to process this is he can't even really see right now. His head is splitting and is in so much pain that he's vomiting. He's like keeled over. And the second he gets a, like a, a moment of relief, he looks over and Cedric's body's just there. And he doesn't know. He there's no there's literally no time to process. He realizes that this figure who has been walking through the gravestones is Wormtail. Another big oh crap. Right. And he's carrying baby Voldy. Barbecue fried Voldy, as I like to say. He's Which, not barbecue fried yet. I did some reading on baby Voldy, aka barbecue mm. fried. I baby. really messed up theories about baby Voldy. Are you so? So I was gonna say there's a lot of speculation as to why Voldemort comes back, basically in the form of an infant. And apparently, the author told her publisher the reason, though she never published it 
like publicly as canon and apparently her publisher was so disturbed that they threw up upon hearing oh my gosh yeah. i've heard that i know this theory you're about to say it is quite disturbing yeah it's kind of like a trigger warning like if i don't know like if pregnancy if loss or like infant mortality you know is triggering to you in any particular way just skip forward like 10 seconds but the sort of most popularized theory about why he comes up as a baby is that Bertha Jorkins was pregnant when she came to Albania or she got pregnant upon arrival to Albania and when he killed certain, her yeah. he inhabited the body of her child yes trigger warning over yes totally disturbing because Bertha we get the sense that Bertha wasn't like in captivity of Voldemort and Wormtail for like you know, it wasn't like a night. It was like a long time that she was there giving up information or not giving up, being with information being forced out of her. So this was like a long-term torture probably. And that just adds a whole nother disgusting, disturbing dimension to it. Yes. So that's why Voldemort's a little, little baby. And then, you know, Wormtail it puts an incarcerous spell on Harry and binds him up to this gravestone. And he starts performing this ritual, this like really dark magic old ritual. You And we see it in the film, bone of the father, flesh of the servant cuts. And he there's this cauldron. He's got this cauldron, drops the little baby Voldemort in there, little barbecue fried Voldemort. Bone of the father takes it from the grave, flesh of the servant cuts off his hand and then blood of the enemy. And he cuts Harry's arm and taps some blood into this cauldron. And Tom Riddle, Lord Voldemort, is reborn. I want to read this description of him because it's a little bit different than what we see Rafe finds looking like in the film. Mind you, I think they made him look really cool in the film. I mean, not cool. It's not cool. It's really creepy. But I thought he looked really good in the film. But this, the description we get in the books is a little bit different. The air was suddenly full of swishing cloaks. We do see that. Between graves, behind the yew tree, and every shadowy place, wizards... Oh, no, that's... I'm sorry. That is the Death Eaters. Where's Tom Riddle? Hello? I wrote it down. 646. I guess it would be the page before. Where is it? Oh, here it is. Voldemort looked away from Harry and began examining his own body. His hands were like large, pale spiders. His long, white fingers caressed his own chest, his arms, his face. The red eyes, whose pupils were like slits, like a cat's, gleamed still more brightly through the darkness. He held up his hands and flexed the fingers, his expression wrapped and exultant. And yeah, so he's got these scarlet red eyes and a really high-pitched voice. So we know from Harry's when Harry's experience with the diary, Tom Riddle used to be a very like attractive young man. And that is all gone now. And there's speculation as to whether that was, that is like now how he looks after being reborn after like being vanquished sort of the first time, or if he had already looked like that after Horcrux number six, or I guess it would be how many Horcruxes? Seven. I guess it would be Horcrux number five. Cause he made Nagini after Right. reborn so uh, or if he already looked at, like that by horcrux number five i think a lot of people agree on the fact that maybe he like at least still had hair by horcrux five gets vanquished and then when he comes back he's like bald and he, he's much more he's got slits for noses for for nostrils red eye very creepy visual and he's you know we're gonna hear in a second he's been like embodying and possessing snakes in order to like live they're um, his favorite. They're his favorite. So 
the sort of snake serpentine imagery makes sense. And he's very quick to monologue. Right. And I just wrote down that this is really the first time dark magic is on full blown display. And I think what is so disturbing is how normal it is for both Wormtail and Voldemort. Like this is just like another day on the job. Icky. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. Like so, and oh, this brings us into chapter 33, the death eaters. Oh, I did have just another note kind of on this ritual. Yeah. So Voldemort, I, I kind of, I think it's interesting that the blood of the enemy, he specifically uses Harry and it's sort of this big kind of arrogant, egotistical display in the graveyard. It, all things Voldemort does, it's going to come around to bite him later oh. because Voldemort oh. has so many enemies, right? Like he could have really... He's like, he's the supreme villain. There's so many people he could have chosen to use the blood from. But the fact that he specifically uses Harry's blood, it binds him to Harry. Which means- And he thinks it's an advantage. Right. He thinks like, this is a good move. Now I can touch him. Before I couldn't touch him. That's why I was, you know, ripped from my body. And now I can touch him because now I've got his blood in me and the, the protection's gone. Or so he thinks. Right. And, but he's basically just bound to Harry, like himself to Harry and Harry to Voldemort for the rest of Voldemort's time on earth, you know? Right. I, uh, you could almost argue that like, aside from the murder of James and Lily, and then like trying to curse Harry and then it rebounding. And then that being the thing that ripped him from his body, you could almost argue that this is the thing that seals Harry's fate as the chosen one, as opposed to just the, the his encounter with Voldemort as an infant. Like right. this specifically is the, really the thing that makes him the chosen one. Well, Harry did have the Horcrux inside of him. Oh yes, infancy. that's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't overlook that that is like a huge that's part true. of this. But I, I think what is so fascinating is that Voldemort, though arguably probably, I mean, you can't deny he's one of the best wizards, greatest wizards of all times, just yeah. in terms of his magical knowledge, even if it's dark magic, you yeah. know, he's still brilliant. You know, as Dumbledore is quite brilliant as well, but he understands so little about what went wrong with Harry. And it's like, he kind of sees it as a fluke rather. Right. And that's because he doesn't understand love. And, he, and it's because he's a narcissist. Right. And he can't fathom laying down one's life in service and in love for another person. And he didn't have a mother who mothered him in the way that Lily mothered Harry. It's just that he can't fathom those things. Yeah. And it shows, and he makes really fatal mistakes because of it. Constantly. Right. And it's right. So, so the choosing of Harry for this ritual is a, it's like a power move. It's like a look oh, at he's me. so arrogant. It's arrogance and arrogance is his downfall. In, so in how brilliant and intelligent and wonderful he thinks he is, he is just his own worst enemy in the greatest of ways. Yeah, which is um, almost sweet. He also references it's on well, it's on page six forty eight of my book, which I know it's very different. So yeah, then we're in chapter thirty three now. Go for it. He references the steps he took yes. to become immortal. I have some questions about this, so can we back up and then get into that? Yeah. So. He starts to monologue. He, the, Wormtail's got this dark mark on his arm and it's red. 
at first, which we don't see in the films. It's red and then Voldemort touches it and it turns black and then all these Death Eaters show up and we we learn later that there's approximately 30 of them. Right, I wrote that down. Harry says there's a 30 to 1 ratio. Yeah. But we so only get... Lucius, Avery, McNair, Crab, Goyle, and Knot. Right, those are the only named ones. So there's like 20 plus other people there. Yeah. That's not quite the visual we get in the... There's maybe like what, like eight to ten yeah in the film. generously yeah okay there's a couple things here okay. the this i think what disturbs me the most about the details we get about this scene in the book is that this theme of resurrection combined with the visual of the death eaters coming up to touch and kiss the bottom of voldemort's cloak is very christ it's very biblical i wrote that down as well this is like some like devil stuck in the garden like this yeah, is this some is... like antichrist which it's a very common theme in literature to pull you know biblical, biblical themes, references yeah. and themes into your literature so that's not but i think as somebody who's faith practicing especially it was so disturbing to read this and to think yeah you know, towards Bible stories I listened to as a child or have read in my adult life. And just, yeah. I just felt very icky. And, right. And it's not only that, it's the way he's talking. It's the, and then I ask myself and then I answer myself. It's sort of the like rhetorical language he's using when he talks. It's almost like, a, it's almost like parable. parable. Yeah. Really, it's really like, like the imagery of Christ, but completely defiled and turned into this evil, horrible thing. It's really disturbing to read. It is. And I think we see, we learn so much about Voldemort in this chapter. I would say, dare to say almost more than we're going to learn in a chunk of time in any other chapters in these books. Like we get so much of not maybe not necessarily his backstory or like you he know, gives a little bit of he backstory bit, but we learn in his words in the way that he speaks his character and it's not he's not just evil dude he is calculated he is manipulative he has a plan he has a what he feels to be a greater purpose he definitely sees himself as some sort of dark savior but we also see slight ways in which I think he is embarrassed by who he truly is. One of the things I wrote down, and this might be going back to the last chapter a little bit, is he's very open to Harry about where they are and why it's significant. But he does not give that same information in his monologuing in front of the Death Eaters. Right. And it makes me, it, one thing I've been wondering recently is how, you know, Voldemort's this like demagogue figure how much does he actually believe his own cause versus it just being a vehicle for him to be in power like to unite all these people who end up following him under this one banner under this one cause of eradicating muggles and muggle-borns well it's very esque. it's soup it's well it's absolutely like Legler wasn't he wasn't even born in germany he was not aryan which is like what he espoused and supposedly loves so much. He was uh, a Hungarian Austrian and, mm-hmm. but like he had these, he just saw a way in, right? He saw right. a way in. And I think Voldemort in the similar way, he's seen his way in, especially probably growing up in Slytherin house. I mean, pure blood supremacy and that sort of rhetoric far 
like pre-existed Voldemort. He right. And that's it. as far as the literature goes, like JK Rowling directly took let's be clear to everyone listening, Voldemort and the Death Eaters and pure blood ideology and eugenics are a direct allegory to Nazis and Hitler and Nazism. If you have questions about what that is or what that looked like in the 1940s, you need to go do a little bit of research and learn some history, okay? Because it's very important to understand these parallels and why it's really bad and not something to be romanticized. Let's put away our, our dark mark tattoos and our... Yeah. Uh, so I think he... Yeah, I just think he sees this way in. He sees a frustrated group of people. They don't want the Muggleborns in Hogwarts. They don't want them existing in their society. They want, to remain, they want to remain elite. Right. It's about wealth. It's about power. It's about elitism. It's all of these things. And he's really none of those things. But he has yeah. the in. And we sort of see it in Snape as well, right? Snape's not a pure blood. He doesn't come from a wealthy family, but he's incredibly intelligent and he uses that to his advantage to become in this cause. Right. I would argue that Snape's sort of the same way in that we don't really see him being super gung-ho about pure blood supremacy ever in this series. He's not, he doesn't like, you know, he doesn't make comments that indicate he really values that we do know that because of his upbringing he absolutely hated his muggle father and that probably gave him a good deal of prejudice towards muggles and muggleborns but he's tom riddle right but that's not that he doesn't join the cause for because he's really into supremacy he joins the cause because he's really into being seen as somebody who is powerful and important and substantial and because that he was, was never his seen end. as the he was never seen as those things in his life and here right. he has a chance to use his super intelligence to elevate him into a good position right and it did and but just because you even if you are not an active participant if you're a bystander or a passive participant you are still equally as guilty um, oh yeah to and the you know to the consequences of what's happened and the actions of the people that you're supporting directly. And so, it, but it, we just, it's so interesting to see if like Voldemort is not a pureblood. He didn't grow up in an elite wizarding world. He was an orphan who lived in a boy's home. Like he, he's all of these things that somebody like Lucius Malfoy would turn his nose up at. Yeah. If he met him in a different context of this situation. But he has created this mystique around himself. He has built up this story, but he is not completely honest with his followers about who he is. He doesn't tell them, oh, yes, we're in this muggle graveyard, this random muggle graveyard at the home of my muggle father. Like, he doesn't right. give that color to these people because he needs them to see him as this immortal, uh, strong like cannot be taken down sort of being it's the fear that keeps people loyal to him absolutely it's rather be feared than loved this bring this is getting back to the point you made a few minutes ago about him saying like they knew he's talking about his death eaters and his most loyal followers and he says verbatim they knew the steps i took to guard myself against mortal death it makes you wonder who knew and how much so that's my question is because lucius malfoy doesn't seem to truly know but does he but because does he? he was the one that was trusted to guard the diary right and he How gives it to 
like yeah so like maybe he has some inkling or like how much does he know because i think the people who might know the full extent of the horcruxes are voldemort's first followers avery senior mulciber senior the lestranges um, i think no the lestrange in their vaults right so so his most loyal followers but like snape was very high up in the ranks in the first wizarding war very high up he was super trusted by voldemort and super instrumental in a lot of his but sort maybe of maybe voldemort thought that might have been a step too far for snape well that's my question is like why if people who he's considering to be his most loyal followers knew about the horcruxes like we know regulus started to know about the horcruxes like he told or if, if he didn't tell regulus came into that information right. about horcruxes and that's what made him like turn but what is the if snape does not know about the horcruxes which he clearly doesn't because he would have told dumbledore he really would have why not why didn't he trust snape with that information i the only thing is i can a plot hole is it something we can explain away i think well i think so many things can be plot holes if i were to explain it away i would say because i think a lot of voldemort's followers are almost like fanatical blind followers you know they'll just trudge after him especially when you look at some of the first death eaters specifically i think you know like bellatrix really embodies that characterization but i think snape is he is slash was the very intelligent he sort of was counsel to voldemort on a lot of issues we're going to see it kind of moving particularly forward. in the second war right which we assume that would probably also be the case at some point in the first war and i think maybe that just would have been a step too far understanding the magic and what had to go into it and really fully comprehending that from an academic perspective i think it just might have been like a step beyond yeah that's and what you could snape might have been able to put two and two together that harry was a horcrux right because you know which if, wouldn't work with the plot <laughs> exactly that's my point is like if snape knows about horcrux if snape knows about horcruxes dumbledore would know but we know he doesn't quite know yet though he has a suspicion he would know about harry and he doesn't he would yeah it just creates all these issues so we are we have to assume that snape is not one of the people that voldemort trusted with that information and if so why Right. Well, so Voldemort mentions the six missing Death Eaters. Right. Oh, it's so interesting. And I want to decode this. Can I read the passage? First of all, before we get there real quick, the Death Eaters show up when the... Oh, but sorry. My point about him mentioning his immortality is surely when Harry debriefs this with Dumbledore and or gives him his memory for the Pensieve, this is going to be key for Dumbledore because it probably is going to confirm, it is going to confirm his suspicions that, you know, Voldemort has been creating Horcruxes, even even if Dumbledore doesn't have a name to put on. Right. Another instance of Voldemort shooting himself in the foot by saying this in front of Harry, because he doesn't think Harry's going to walk out of this graveyard. Right. So Death Eaters show up. Avery tries to say something. He gets crucioed. He, there's a mention of, if you guys thought the Malfoys were like some captives to the Death Eater cause, there's a mention, Voldemort's like, Lucius, are you ready to re, like assume your position of leading muggle torture? That was Lucius's job in the first war, was muggle torture. Now he was never like, public about it he was you know he what he was put on trial at some point but talked his way out of it or somebody said they put him under the imperious curse so as like a public face 
people didn't know this, but for the Death Eater ranks, Lucius was in charge of Muggle torture, which is like disturbing father, and like awful. Son. Yeah, exactly. And then he mentions the Lestranges. He says they they would you know rather than renounce me, they like went they went to prison for me, and they're going to be rewarded way more than any of you who like slithered back into your holes or whatever. He promises to free them home. from Azkaban. Right. Uh, so so that's another thing that Harry now knows is going right. to happen. So yes, yeah, so there are these six missing Death Eaters. And here we have six missing missing Death Eaters. So there are 30. So there's, we are led to believe there's approximately 36 Death Eaters in the inner circle. And he has them counted. He knows exactly who's there and he has counted six that are missing. So it says, three dead in my service, one too cowardly to return, he will pay. One who I believe has left me forever, he will be killed, of course, and one who remains my most faithful servant who has already re-entered my service. And then later it says that Death Eater, that most faithful servant, is at Hogwarts. So our first thought is, oh my God, Snape. Yeah, because, yeah, it's from Harry's perspective, it makes sense. So we're thinking Snape would be the most faithful, but... Let's actually decode who these people are. So for the dead, I have Regulus... Evan Rosier Ros- and Wilkes. Yes, correct. Yeah, Ro- Evan Rosier was killed by Mad Eye for resisting arrest. Wilkes, at some point, was killed possibly at the same time, and then Regulus, you know, died trying to destroy the Horcrux. But Voldemort doesn't know that. No, right? He but doesn't know that dead. Regulus they betrayed know him because he's dead. Right. Yeah. So Regulus coward would be Karkarov. Yes, he will pay. Yeah, left he- forever. Severus Snape. That is actually Severus, correct. And faithful Barty Crouch Jr. Yeah. Yeah, that's who I... Yes, that's... No, that's right. That's the six that he's talking about, which is super interesting because that's another red herring for us. Yeah. In the the plot to incriminate Snape. Yeah. And then, you know, he goes into this monologue. Voldemort goes into his monologue for his... For these Death Eaters there. Here to witness him murder Harry and assert his dominance over the wizarding world and just dispel any thought that Harry is somehow more powerful than him. I don't think we can move past this chapter without really explicitly mentioning that Malfoy is not the only parent of a classmate. No. That is there. Obviously Crabbe and Goyle. Yep. And then Um, not, Theodore not a student right now. Yep. Yeah. And so I, I was thinking about this and I said, what I thought is there's something really to be said that Dumbledore almost for certain knows that these people's parents are Death Eaters and he provides them the same opportunities towards education as he does anybody else. That's a really good point. And I think Dumbledore hopes, and this all actually pretty much happens with Draco by the end though he doesn't actually act on it we know he has changed his mind even if he's kind of too cowardly to actually act on it I think Dumbledore hopes that these kids in getting an education and being away from their parents could change their minds could make their own choices and maybe decide not to follow the same cause and I think Dumbledore I think it's a major theme in the books that you are not what your parents are Yes. And you don't have to be that. And we yes. see it with, or you don't even have to be your circumstances. And we see that with Remus, who has, you know, just a terrible infliction that really runs his life. But he really is able to go beyond that and be, 
you, you know, like you just be something incredible, even in the face of terrible adversity. We see it with Sirius who breaks away from his family. We see it with Lily who becomes just an incredibly talented and wonderful witch despite not having a magical background and yeah. I think just Dumbledore is a big believer in where you come from and whatever your circumstances are you can be whatever you want to be yes and that's you know we've done a lot of critiquing of Dumbledore now reading this as adults but that's one thing to be said in the way that Dumbledore is incredibly noble is just the fact that he's an equal opportunist for all these kids to receive the same education now sometimes the education you're like but it's just willing i think to give people second chances to yeah. give, like snape i mean he gives yeah, no chance you know there's a lot of things to be said about why dumbledore is just you know an undercover villain in, the, in this series but yeah. I, there's also i think a lot to be said in things he does right and the confidence he gives his students especially right. now it's a shame that we don't see Slytherin students like it's not it's just the way the author is chosen to written to write these books that we don't get to see Slytherin students like standing you know separate of their parents I do um, think it would have been very interesting for either in this book or like in a later book for like I don't know Goyle or Theodore Knott or like Pansy Parkinson to like do a 180 and decide like I don't think I'm jiving with this you know supremacy bullcrap that's going on in here or like have a student who is in Slytherin but didn't grow up with a Death Eater parent and like trying to like go through the disparity of like being in Slytherin house and like trying to be a good student and just like a good Slytherin because Slytherins can be good we know they can right and, and like having these housemates and like it would have been cool to see like a standout Slytherin who wasn't just following in that path because and not part of the stereotype and I know we see it with Slughorn and we I see it with Andromeda we, I know, well, but we don't because we, we know don't. about Andromeda, but we don't get to see it. It would have been cool to see it as right. one of the students in the series. Like if they had a friend who was in Slytherin house, who right. they like didn't vilify all the time for being a Slytherin and that person was like a good person and they liked seeing them in class and they liked having lunch with them. And Yeah. 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 I think that would have been really interesting to see. And I think that's a little bit of a missed opportunity. I, I agree. But that was just something I thought about when kind of seeing these parents there. Some yeah. PTA meeting going on right now oh my god yeah yep that brings us into the next chapter unless you have anything else he's just monologuing he's like yeah. talking about he's talking about i lost patience to be honest how, I'll, I'll give you the spark notes version for the reader for the people who may be listening but not reading along he goes over what happened the night of halloween 1981 this protective magic that lily sort of imbued harry with when she sacrificed herself from him that he's like i should have foreseen it but i didn't no matter whatever and it says he says he was ripped from his body which just funny side note does that mean his like body was just there did did you know when Hagrid came to get the baby, did he just like kick Voldemort's lifeless body aside to like get to the crib? Like what? I always imagined it just like disintegrated into ash as he does. Yeah, because the last... we don't get any indication that like, because if the ministry had gotten their hands on a body, they would think he was dead. So it says ripped from his body, but also there's no, we have no evidence. We have no autopsy saw, report. Uh, like as far as we know. So anyway, funny side note. And then he talks about how he, you know, he doesn't really know what he is or like what sort of form he exists in, but he knows he's still alive and he goes to the, the forest in Albania and that's where he meets Quirrell and he possesses Quirrell and Quirrell is like his host. He's like this parasite right now that needs a host to live. So for a time, Quirrell is the parasite 
and then you go through that. Then he comes to like how Wormtail is looking for him in Albania and comes upon Bertha Jorkins, who just happens to be there for some reason. I find it weird because he's talking about how Wormtail sees Bertha in this, I don't know, in like a pub or like an inn at one night. And it says he like convinces her to go on a walk with him. Here's what's really weird about this. We know Bertha Jorkins went to school with the Marauders and would have known Peter there, but to the rest of the wizarding world, Peter's dead. Peter died a day or two after the Potters were killed. Maybe he was rocking some polyjuice potion. Well, I don't know that he- Maybe he was a handsome man and and some potion. I don't know that he was rocking polyjuice or like if she just like didn't recognize him because that's a little bit of a plot hole too. Like if well, she we had do recognized know Peter him, she was been like, like so little to so many people and that he kind of definitely has like small guy syndrome where he's, you know, just overlooked all the time. Right. So I guess you could explain this away in the Watsonian fashion where you could be like, well, maybe she didn't like really get a good look at him at school, but knew the name Peter Pettigrew and that person died. And then this guy shows up and gives her a different name. And they You would have thought his picture would be all over papers. Right. Right. And he probably looks very different now, but just, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, I'm like, wait a minute. He was rocking some like hot guy polyjuice potion. It does. Don't you think it would say that? Well, it's all coming from hair. I mean, I I don't know that Voldemort's getting into that, uh, level of depth you know because wormtail is nothing to him so why would he give wormtail any credit for doing anything you know that's I, that's fair anyway I wanted to admit that wormtail had skill enough to brew a polyjuice potion but he does he says that he's like i'll admit i was impressed by wormtail's idea to lure bertha jorkins back to like where i was staying in the forest and like get all this information out of her so we he know had that a they... little like treehouse out there little clubhouse voldemort's clubhouse come inside it's dark inside i don't know <laughs> it's barbecue in here but they basically tortured bertha probably long term and got all this information about the triwizard so tournament sad. so sad poor bertha jorkins and then yes this does bring us into chapter 34 priori incantata he suddenly turns his attentions to harry and the first thing that harry gets is for the first time ever a Cruciatus curse. And he says it's like white hot knives piercing every inch of his skin. That's yeah. how much it hurts. I don't know if you've ever like accidentally poked yourself with like a safety pin or gotten a shot in your arm, but like, I hate needles. I hate like getting pierced with anything. So thinking about a bunch of knives all over your skin, like I'm not down. It's not ideal. Not ideal. <laughs> Sounds very painful. Not what you're really looking for in life, you know? And Voldemort is going to challenge Harry for a duel, not actually because he's noble, because he wants to make it a spectacle and make a fool of Harry in front of his Death Eaters and make himself seem, which is like, dude, you're like, what, in your 70s? If right. we don't count the the 13 years you, you like weren't a person, or if we do count the 13 years you weren't a person, and this kid's 14, like you could just, he has to be a drama queen, right. it's his downfall. So and like we said earlier, Harry mentions that even if he got past Voldemort, there's a there's a 30 to one ratio of him versus Death Eater. Yeah, it's Voldemort, sad, I don't think he's expecting to make it out of this situation he's not, a lot. He's maybe. not, he does not think he's gonna make it out of here. And Voldemort mentions, just to add insult to injury, as he's already been saying like, 
your mother was foolish and died for you, blah, blah, blah. Add to add insult to injury. He's like, come on, stand up and you can die straight backed and straight backed and proud, just like your father. So giving us an indication of how like the imagery of when James was killed. So sad, but also very James yeah. to just like James very did James. not have it. We know James did not have his wand on him when Voldemort surprised them and burst into the house. And it very James to just stand there and block the stairs and be like, I know I'm not getting out of this, but if I can do anything to stall so my wife and child can get away, I'm going to. And just to stand there and just be straight and tall and proud. I just, oh God, it makes me so sad, but also I'm so proud of him. I, yeah. I view James as like a per, like a personal friend. <laughs> like the Marauders are like my friends. We're close. Yeah, we're tight. And then he resists an Imperio curse from Voldemort, which is a big deal. Right. Yeah. And he can do this because Moody has trained him in a weird way. Yeah. Like Barty Crouch Jr. sort of <laughs> messed that up for Voldemort a little bit, which is kind of funny. But that's a big deal. Like that is, and you know, you could sort of argue it either way. Like either Harry's a really skilled wizard and he's particularly good as we've seen at resisting this curse, even from a very powerful dark wizard, or you could maybe argue that this has something to do with the fact that Voldemort and Harry are connected to each other and that it's almost like he's resisting a curse from, you know, a, a part of him is resisting it from himself. I don't, that doesn't make any sense, but. No, that's what that I makes, got. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I, I understand you. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Yeah, thanks. And then the final sort of standoff for this duel. It, do you want to go into it? Or you want me to continue? Yeah, I, I hate this. Like, he forces Harry to, like, duel properly with him. As if there is any honor or valor or anything any good this. about this situation. It's like adding insult to injury. And Harry, there's kind of a line in there that suggests like Harry understands he's not going to make it out of here. At least that's his, but he's not going to go down as a coward. Yeah. Um, he's like, I am going to die like my dad. If I'm going to die, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to face him. So he fights it a little bit. Like he pushes back. And I wrote in here, in my notes in here, <laughs> that Harry greets death bravely, which yeah. is foreshadowing to how he will greet death again in the last book but he's willing like he's willing to face it and i think that yeah. is a lot of lily in him right um, and, james. and a lot of james in him as well yeah so he so so the imagery of what happens here is he like kind of he resists this imperial curse and he there's another curse coming out of it coming at him and he runs and he sort of dives behind a headstone and he's hiding behind this headstone voldemort's like come out and just it's get it over with Harry's like, you know what? Okay. And he stands up and he goes to use Expelliarmus and Voldemort goes to use the killing curse and the wands connect and there's this golden beam connecting them. This is the priori incantata. Dumbledore is going to explain to us exactly how this works very shortly in the next couple, well, in the next, in our next episode, but in the next couple chapters of the book. But it's this connection between Voldemort and Harry's wand and the, both their connection to each other and then the connection of the similarity of wand core that is preventing either from really passing, like sending this spell past the other. Right. And here, so yeah, there's, we get this imagery. There's this gold beam connecting the wands and these like beads sort of traveling down the wand that like will make the wand hot and like vibrate harder. And it's like sort of a game like, 
not a game but like a game where they're like trying to send the bead towards the other person they start rising into the air and then this dome forms around them it's this crazy thing to witness and all the death eaters are freaking out but voldemort in his arrogance is like he's mine don't touch him yeah leave it alone i got this yeah yeah so one of the phenomenons related to this priori incantatum is that harry starts hearing phoenix song yeah, I was wondering about that. And he's, he thinks it's Dumbledore sending yeah. him a message because it tells him, he hears within the music, don't break the connection. However, this is not, we cannot attribute this to Dumbledore. A part of the, I got this from the Harry Potter lexicon, but part of the phenomenon with Priori Incantatum is that if there are two wands that are forced to battle that share the same phoenix feather core so it has to come from the same phoenix then it will cause phoenix song to arrive whoa okay see i read that and i was like why is that happening yeah that's really interesting so this is like kind of the first phenomenon but because he associates the phoenix to dumbledore the phoenix found him in the chamber of secrets and brought him the sword he thinks that this is like a gift from Dumbledore but it's not this is just mm-hmm. like ancient cool dark you know like complex magic stuff yeah. and then like you said with these beads that are kind of coming from the wands kind of eventually what's happening is that there's like smoke people <laughs> coming out of yeah them. they're not we don't really know what they are because they're not ghosts that they're like vapor people right ghosts are well and that's the imagery we get in the movie ghosts are like people who choose to like remain sort of in this realm as we know as we talked about at halloween but these are not ghosts it's like the spirit of the people materializing like vapor sort of like a patronus but not a patronus Sorry, I pressed my space bar accidentally and muted myself. Okay. I saw you <laughs> yeah. talking and I just waited. Like a Patronus. Yeah, that's kind of how I imagine this. And so right. the first person to come... And these are, by the way, these are the spirits of the people, the last people that Voldemort's wand has murdered coming back out of the wand as right. this is happening. So... So the first person to come back out is Cedric. So, so yeah, like you said, it's coming back in the order of... <laughs> murder most recent murdered so kind of an interesting tidbit here is that in early editions of this book it had jame coming out of the like materializing before lily it's since been corrected in later editions because obviously he was killed before lily yeah so cedric comes out first and then we see bryce frank bryce thank you mr Bryce, the caretaker at the riddle house Right. And they're kind of all speaking to Harry. And so we, we start seeing more and more people. And Harry says, as soon as he saw Cedric, he knew in his heart that his mother would be coming. Yeah. So it's Cedric, Frank Bryce, Bertha Jorkins. Right. Who's like cheering him on. Love that. And then his, and then Lily comes out of the wand. And this would be Harry's first time seeing Lily like fully grown in front of him and speaking to him because he's seen them in he's seen them in the mirror of erised and in photographs but they're not verbalizing right so and so the thing that absolutely broke my heart about this other than 
it's just heartbreaking because Harry's in this, you know, this moment and his parent, he just, you know, his parents are coming out and the thing he wants most in this whole world, just coming out in front of him. What's heartbreaking about this is Lily says like, you know, your father's coming next. Mm -hmm. She's, that's the thing she says to me. She's, she's like, your father will be here. He's coming next. I literally this is Lily telling Harry that his father's coming has me crying in the club. (laughs) No, seriously. It's, I I broke down. I think the thing that's the saddest about this moment is Lily isn't like showing up and being like, what's going on? She knows exactly what's going on. Right. And that tells you that when she says to Harry, when she sees him with the resurrection stone, he says, stay close to me. And she says, always like, she's always, well, that might just be a movie thing. I don't know what she actually says in the book. I haven't gotten there yet on my reread. I've read it before. I just don't remember what she says. His parents are, that tells you that his parents are aware of what's happening because they are really always with him. And they are with him through everything and they know exactly what's happening in his life. Right. They're they're actually watching over. That's a really good point. Yeah. Oh my lord, I I started tearing up when I read that. I was like, oh my god, they're they're act- like and, and they say like we're with you always, but this is confirmation that they're actually with him always. Right. Wow. So all these people are cheering him on. James comes out, he basically tells them that once the connection is broken, Harry's only going to have a few minutes while his like spirit warriors can hold (laughs) off Voldemort before he's going to need, he like needs to hightail it out of there. And then Cedric makes a bold ask of, can you bring my body back to my parents? And Harry, he has like a lot to lose if this takes more time than he has allotted to get the heck out of there. And again, Voldemort's also reiterating to the Death Eaters, don't kill him, I want to kill him. And so Harry is able to make it to, it's like his leg's not hurting him anymore. So he's able to hightail it to Cedric's body, yeah, right? Yeah. The, port key the port key and get the heck out of there. And he leaves and that's where we leave off at chapter 34. There's Just a the lot to unpack in there. Hogwarts band music coming in now. Yeah, the Hogwarts march. I People use that sound in such funny ways on TikTok. I appreciate it. That is our penultimate episode on the Goblet of Fire. Next week, you will hear the final three chapters of the book. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to unpack with that too. So stick with us. And then we will see you the following week for our film episode in which we will cast our own 2020 version I'm sorry, it's 2021. What? Our own, it's six months into 2021. We will cast our own 2021 version of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, the movie. Right. Yeah. Thanks for uh, listening. Next week. Yep. Bye. Ta-ta. That was fun. Hey, thanks for listening to our latest episode. As always, please subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And if you're not a listener on Apple Podcasts, it would still help us out a lot if you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about anything you heard in this episode today, please drop us a line at our Anchor profile. You can leave us a nifty little voice message there, or you can head to our Instagram at the Daily Podcast to DM us or leave us an email. Thank you.